0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We'll be in Revelation 19 to bring you up to speed in case you forgot, or maybe you haven't been with us. We've actually gone through the whole book of Revelation, started at the beginning, and just the big picture is the first three chapters emphasize uh, God's words to his church, and we believe that the church age has been going on for 2,000 years. At some point, church age is going to end with the rapture, the glorious rapture of Jesus Christ, calling... Uh, all Christians, dead and alive, to himself up in heaven where he gives them a resurrection body and they live with him in heaven. And at some point after the church age and the rapture, there's a tribulation that Jesus actually called the Great Tribulation, and that will be a seven-year period. And in the middle of that seven-year period, uh, there's going to be a climactic event of the Antichrist, world ruler, who will be exposed and consolidate power. And during that seven-year period, there will be judgments enacted by God actually on unbelievers on earth and they will go from not mild but severe to even more severe throughout that seven-year period and so a big chunk of revelation the way it's laid out it gives a lot of details on this seven-year coming great tribulation starting with judgments that were called the seal judgments at the beginning of the tribulation and then there will be more judgments from God around the midpoint of the tribulation those were called the trumpet the seven trumpet judgments and then Recently, we've been looking at the end of this seven-year tribulation period uh, where God ups the ante of his wrath, really, on unbelievers on the earth against uh, all unbelievers, including the Antichrist, and he pours out his judgments in what are described as bold judgments in the book of Revelation. And so that's kind of where we're at now. The end of the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist has reigned supreme on earth and created much havoc and chaos persecuting believers wherever he can find them, even to the point of death. And so then last week we saw at the end of this seven year tribulation, God was going to put it to an end and bring justice and judgment to his enemies, but also relief uh, to those who believe on earth. and Jesus returns at the second coming, the glorious event we're looking to. and when Jesus comes at the second coming, He's going to rescue believers that are still living on the earth. And so we saw the second coming of Jesus Christ last week in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, where he literally comes in the sky and the whole world can see him at that time uh, like a flash of lightning. And he lands uh, at some point, he ends up in Jerusalem and he will begin his reign as king of the earth uh, at that point, the the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pick up in the chronology and so today we're looking at an event that happens immediately after Jesus returns to earth. This is a literal event. It's really going to happen. It's going to be physical. Jesus is going to return as a glorious, resurrected, majestic military leader and conqueror called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will land on earth and he will rule. He'll rule in truth, justice, and righteousness. And one of the first things he's going to do after he rescues and relieves his people who are being persecuted, he's also going to crush his enemies. And so the details of how he crushes his enemies is actually our topic of the day, Revelation 19, 17 through 21. And this has become known as the Battle of Armageddon. And I think that's an appropriate title. As a matter of fact, that's the title I chose for the sermon today, the Battle of Armageddon. And so we're going to go ahead and look at it. It's a real event. Let me read first as you follow with me, verses 17 to 21. Just as Jesus returns lands on earth and then this is what happens verse 17 john the apostle who's writing this book and receiving these divine revelations continues and he says and i saw an angel standing in the sun and the angel cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, come assemble for the great supper of god in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men And the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is the battle of Armageddon. It's a battle really like no other battle in the history of the world. There's parallels and there's differences. Uh similarities to other battles in the world is that it's a real battle. It's really going to happen just as described here. It's not a spiritual battle that happens in the sky or in the ethereal, uh, non-physical world. This is going to be a literal, physical war and battle that takes place. It's literally on earth. Uh, and there's great bloodshed, as you see from the text, great violence that happens in this war. Those are the similarities. This war is going to be different than all other wars that have happened throughout the history of the world and that it's going to be the greatest war that has ever taken place in the history of the world. It's going to be World War Four or Five or Three or whatever it is, uh, the world war to end all world wars. Uh, so it's going to be unprecedented in terms of how massive, great, in terms of the implications of this war that is coming. War is always going on in earth, by the way. There's never really a time for peace. Uh, recently, somebody was, I can't who it was, they were doing research. There's currently 11 wars going on in the world right now between nations, there's always war going on because that's humanity. They are sinful. And war is the result of sinful hearts. But this war is going to dwarf all other wars for two main reasons. And we're going to see the details of that. Uh, one of the reasons this is the greatest war of all time is because of who it involves. Uh, the text says in other prof, uh, passages say that all the nations of the world are going to be involved in this war. There is not one nation, not one king on earth at that time that will be neutral which is what happened, has happened really throughout all history. Some nations haven't been involved in the world wars. Or you got your Switzerland out there and, oh, we're neutral, we're on base, free. Uh, in this war, no neutral nations. Every nation on earth is going to be involved in this last war. And another thing that distinguishes this war from all others is the just rampant carnage that results from this war. Uh, it is devastating, it is explicit. It's stated in the book of Revelation. Um, there's going to be carnage, devastation, death uh, like never seen before. Earlier we saw in Revelation that uh, the blood was going to be splattering all over the course of 200 miles, said Revelation 14, from this war. Uh, so the carnage is going to be devastating. I and mean, literally we're going to see there's going to be a battlefield with millions, possibly hundreds of millions of people who are slaughtered, and almost in an instant uh, it's going to be a bloodbath. And that war is yet coming. So that's the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, some details I want to get from other passages. Uh, two, to remind you of Revelation 14, uh, we were reminded that this war was coming in Revelation 14, verse 17. Actually, starting at verse 18, it said another angel. This was just before the bold judgments were poured out. And this was a prophecy that God gave John as kind of a preview of the coming battle, the battle of Armageddon. That's what it's talking about. So Revelation 14 is prophetic, it is proleptic, it's a preview of what is yet to come that is given more detail later in Revelation 16 and 19. And it says an angel gave this revelation. Uh, and John saw an angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar from which is up and in heaven. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth. This is God's judgment. And gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. God's going to pour out His wrath during this war, the battle of Armageddon, against His enemies on earth. Verse 20, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, outside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the focal point of this war is not going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to be outside the city of Jerusalem, north of Jerusalem in the Jezreel Valley by the city of Megiddo, just below Galilee. That's why it says outside the city. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles is where this battle is going to take place. And that 200-mile zone is in the Jezreel Valley that extends from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to parts of the Jordan River just below Galilee, just above Samaria. And there's a city there, historic city called Megiddo, and it lies right in the middle of this beautiful valley called the Jezreel Valley. And that's where this great battle is going to culminate that we're going to see described in Revelation 19. Then the Battle of Armageddon is explicitly stated. Now, if you flip to Revelation 16 by way of reminder, uh, we saw in the seven bold judgments that happen at the end of the Great Tribulation, Bowl Six and Bowl Seven actually make reference to this battle, this, the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, it's going to be demonically inspired. Verse twelve of Revelation sixteen says, uh, "The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates. That's in the mid east, the Middle East, and the Euphrates water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. We're going to go to this battle, the Battle of Armageddon." John says, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil, and out of the mouth of the beast, that is the antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, demons. The antichrist will be demonly inspired, demonically inspired, as will the false prophet. Verse 14, and they're going to have a part in the culmination of this world war. Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs. The word for sign there is miracles. Real, supernatural miracles. Absolutely frightening. But Satan has that ability. Performing signs or miracles which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. The great day of God Almighty. That is the battle of Armageddon because John tells us that explicitly in verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon or Armageddon. Armageddon. And that is the city I was talking about that's an ancient historic city, very well known, just below Galilee and above Samaria, north of Jerusalem. So John let us know that this battle is going to culminate here. And here this battle is described in Revelation 19, 17 through 21. So let's go ahead and uh, look at the details of the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, it's surprising how much information is not given. It's very cryptic in terms of what is given here by John. But he doesn't want to satisfy all of our curiosity. He just wants to give us, or actually this is Jesus giving us this information of everything simply that we just need to know. Uh, three things that I want to highlight about the Battle of Armageddon uh, verses 17 through 21, before I go to those three points, if you have a finger, you can flip back to Daniel chapter 7. One of the reasons John doesn't give us all kinds of details of the battle of Armageddon is because a lot of the details are given in the books of the Old Testament prophets. Great detail. One example of great detail about some elements of the battle of Armageddon are in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 45. So I want to read that, uh, just read through it real quick. Because it gives us a context, it gives us a background, and it gives some additional information of what's actually going to happen at this battle of Armageddon. So keeping in mind, Jesus returns in the sky, he lands, his saints are following, he is in glory, he's in a resurrected body, he is the king of the universe, he lands, and then the battle commences. And it commences and happens and actually is over very quickly. But there are other precursor events that are happening that God is moving the nations around the world, like I said last week, like chess pieces, putting them in place over a period of years, really, to prepare for this quick battle that happens. And part of that preparation or the precursor events are described in Daniel eleven thirty-six to 45, and it involves the nations of the world at that time, some familiar nations. For example, in verse 42 of Daniel 11, it mentions the country of Egypt. You ever heard of Egypt? Oh, they're just in the headlines and have been for four weeks in a row. Not coincidentally. Not coincidentally. The supermajority of those who live in Egypt and are citizens there and are natives of there today hate the Jews. They're anti-Semitic. I don't know if you knew that. At least from the statistics and what we hear. That is not a coincidence. That is not by chance. And that's not insignificant. And there's great tumult and chaos happening in the country of Egypt. Egypt is mentioned three or four times in this passage about the details of the Battle of Armageddon. So let's go ahead and look at it, starting at verse 36. 36 to 45, the main character here is the Antichrist, the world ruler at the end of the age, who reigns supreme and finally meets his demise at the end of the seven-year tribulation. He is called in the beginning of verse 36, the king. It's the Antichrist. Then the king will do as he pleases. The Antichrist. He will exalt and magnify himself over every God, because he thinks he is God. And he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, blasphemer. He will prosper until the indignation or wrath is finished. That happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation. For that which is decreed will be done. God's plan is going to happen down to every last detail. That's what that means. Verse 37, And, He, the Antichrist, will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. All traditions are thrown out the window. All religion is thrown out the window in preference for his man-made, self-appointed religion. Throw that out the window. Also, he'll throw out the window the desire of women, or one translation says the one desired by women. That might be the messianic hope. He just tramples on the messianic hope. Nor will the Antichrist show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. He considers himself to be god. Verse 38, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses. So he's going to be a warrior, a leader of might. Might makes right. A God whom his fathers did not know he will honor. So in other words, he's unprecedented. No one has ever seen a ruler like this in the history of the world because he is literally satanically possessed and supernaturally empowered. He actually possibly even died and resurrected back to life. Unbelievable. He... Uh, they, he will honor his God with gold, silver, costly stones and treasure. So he's going to be crassly materialistic. Uh, verse 39, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of foreign, a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end time, okay, so at the end of the seven-year tribulation, uh, the Antichrist is going to have problems. So he's wooed all these kings and allegiance to himself and all their loyalty around the world because he's got all this power, uh, but at the end, they're going to kind of turn against the Antichrist. They had this loyalty, and now they're going to turn against him. So this thing is going to implode, this false uh, kingdom that the Antichrist has set up, and it's going to implode in the face of the Antichrist, and God's going to use it for God's good. And so that's what verse 40 is talking about. Uh, at the end time, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the king of the south, that is the king of Egypt, the nation of Egypt is what it's talking about. Just below Israel. At the end time, the king of Egypt, uh, the king of the south or Egypt, will collide with the Antichrist. In Israel is where that battle is going to happen. And the king of the north north of Israel, will storm against the Antichrist with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. And the Antichrist, he's going to have his forces, and he's just going to go through and just decimate uh, countries and nations at that time, at the end of the age. Once again, trying to consolidate power and "...stifle any uprisings against his rule." Verse 41, "...he will also enter the beautiful land." That is, Jerusalem. "...many countries will fall at that time, but these will be rescued out of his hand." Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Verse 42, "...then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will uh, gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt." And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels, verse 44, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb the Antichrist. Rumors, what are the rumors? Probably that the Euphrates River has dried up and there's an oncoming army of 200 million men. Whoa, what a rumor. That's what was prophesied earlier in, in Revelation 16. Rumors from the east and from the north will disturb the Antichrist and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many and he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas. He's going to he's going to move his headquarters from Babylon for whatever reason between the seas. That's in Palestine in the beautiful land between the sea of the Dead Sea or yeah, the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, which is right where the Jezreel Valley is, which is right where historically the city of Megiddo is, the battle of Armageddon. And he's going to pitch his tent and there's where his headquarters are going to be for World War 5. He will pitch the tents of His royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet He will come to His end. That's when Messiah overtakes Him, as described in Revelation 19, and no one will help Him. Again, this is prophetic. This is Daniel 500 years before Jesus came. This is 2,500 years ago, giving details about what's going to happen leading up to this battle of Armageddon. So with that background, let's go ahead and look at... Uh, these three points about the battle of Armageddon as John describes them. The first point are the preparations for this great battle. The preparations for the battle. God's getting things into place. Now that's 17 and 18. John says, and I saw an angel standing in the sun. So there's this angel of God who's standing in the sun, which means the whole world can see him. It's conspicuous. It is not hidden. Clearly revealed. Clearly revealed. There won't be any question, that's the point, there won't be any question that the Battle of Armageddon is upon us. That is very important because you know all all throughout history, church history for 2,000 years at different points when some evil ruler rose to power either in the early church age or in the Middle Ages or during the times of Calvin and Wycliffe and Luther when Christians were being persecuted or even recently in the last 100 years with two world wars. Inevitably, somebody in the church of the Christian community during those times of conflict which are usually not covering the whole world, Christians will say, are we in the battle of Armageddon? Is the tribulation happening right now? Is the Antichrist alive and well on planet Earth? Is Gorbachev the Antichrist? He's got a mark on his forehead. No. Gorbachev is not the Antichrist, uh, the Gulf War was not the Battle of Armageddon because the Battle of Armageddon is announced by a conspicuous, universally seen angel of God up in the heavens announcing that the Battle of Armageddon is upon us. And I literally have had phone calls during different times from people. Are we in the tribulation? Is he the Antichrist? And no, I haven't seen an angel in the sun announce it yet. So God wants His people to know. He wants them to be informed. That is the message, the encouraging message of Matthew 24 when Jesus is telling the saints at that time, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know. I want you to know. Here are the signs. Here are the signs. Be awake. God wants His people to be prepared. It's the grace of God. So to answer your question, we're not in the Battle of Armageddon. We are not in the Tribulation. The Tribulation hasn't happened yet. And as some commentators would say, uh, the Battle of, uh, they would say the opposite. They would say that the Battle of Armageddon has already happened. It happened when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and blah, 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 blah. No. Doesn't fit the details of prophecy. So, getting back to verse 17. The preparations. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice. Boy, that's gotta be thunderous. An angel from God, from heaven, crying out at the top of his lungs. I guess angels have lungs. Saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, these are literal birds. Jesus med- mentioned this in Matthew 24. Jesus mentioned this in Luke 17 when he was pre- talking about when he returns to earth and he was talking about this great battle that was gonna happen and Jesus himself said that birds were gonna gather Vultures. Jesus used the word vulture. It was a more specific word—vulture or eagle. The vultures will gather at the consummation of this battle. What do vultures do? They eat dead meat, and that's exactly what this is referring to. This, this is like a, a prophecy of what's going to happen about this battle. These are predictions of how it's going to result as Jesus meets head-on with his enemies in this battle. And what's going to happen is this angel is calling all—he's inviting all the birds of planet Earth to come and fly. Come to the Jezreel Valley. Come to Armageddon. And you will have a feast. Because literally at the end of verse 17, the angel says, Come assemble. Those words are taken out of Ezekiel 39, 17 and following. Verbatim. Where an angel of God is calling to the vultures of the world to come and assemble and to eat and feast on human carnage. And that's what's going on right here. All the birds, the vultures of midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. What is the great supper of God? The supper of God is this battle. The supper of God is the battle of Armageddon. This supper is not a good supper. This supper is an ugly supper. It is a bloody mess. And it is specifically in direct contrast to that beautiful, blessed supper mentioned in verse 9 of the same chapter, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be a gracious celebration with no blood, but just the saints having... Beautiful communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. That is going to be a blessed event. We've already talked about that. In contrast to that is this supper for the enemies of God, the unbelieving, who willfully, knowingly resisted the gospel of Jesus Christ and willingly, knowingly made allegiance to the Antichrist and worship him as God and doing that by taking a mark on the wrist or on the forehead, calling him God. That is the supper. It is a supper of judgment. Verse 18, so these birds are called, these vultures are called to assemble at Armageddon in the Jezreel Valley at this battle because there's going to be great carnage, death, possibly in the millions, maybe even beyond that. Verse 18, and the angel goes on, come and assemble you vultures in order that you may eat the flesh of kings. I mean, this is just stunning in terms of how graphic, this is PG-13, my fault. Maybe even worse than PG-13. But it is the Word of God. It's supernatural truth that the church needs to hear. Because it's reality. This is not fiction. This is really going to happen. And the terminology, again, this is taken right out of Ezekiel 39. The prophet. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and of the flesh of all men. That's talking about... All unbelievers on planet earth that are alive when Jesus returns. that refer, It's the same people that were called earth dwellers all throughout Revelation. Starting at Revelation 3.10 all the way to right here. Earth dwellers are people who think that earth is their home. They don't want heaven. They don't want Jesus. They're committed to Satan. They're committed to the Antichrist. And John calls them earth dwellers all throughout the book of Revelation. And they are loyal to the Antichrist. And here they meet face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're going to pay the price of death by Jesus himself. All men. So everybody mentioned in verse 18 is loyal to the Antichrist. The kings, the kings of the earth, all nations. And so these are the preparations. So the preparation really is a prophecy that uh, Jesus is going to win this battle. But it's going to be devastating and it's going to fulfill much prophecy. Ezekiel 39, Psalm chapter 2, many other... Uh, references uh, Daniel chapter 11 to a T, to a T, Zechariah 14. There are so many Old Testament prophets that address this, we can't even look at all the passages, but it's all over the place. So this is, if you're reading this, this is news to you, and you're thinking, boy, this isn't very flattering or glamorous. Boy, this just spoiled my lunch. I don't know if I'm going to want to eat at the fellowship meal. Then I'd say, well, maybe you're not familiar with Scripture enough in the Old Testament because it is the Old Testament is replete with this truth about how world history is going to end. The Battle of Armageddon. The good news about this gory two verses is it is Jesus who was the victor in this. That's why he had blood on his robe when he returned as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords last week. That blood was not the blood of his cross. That was the blood prophetically of his victory over his enemies when he lands. So those are the preparations. Let's go on to the. Oh, one thing I want to say about the, the the ancient city of Armageddon before I move on to point two, which is really interesting. Uh Armageddon, as I said, was a real city. It still is a real city, north of Jerusalem, just above Samaria, just below Galilee, in the Jezreel Valley, Uh, an ancient fortified city. It runs east to west for many, many miles. It is the most famous battlefield in the history of the world. Isn't that amazing? Because battles have been fought in the Jezreel Valley and by Megiddo, by Countries all throughout history, including the Assyrians, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Israelites, the Persians, the Arabs, the Philistines, the Romans. Napoleon Bonaparte, when he was taken over the world, went through the Jezreel Valley. And with his hand, I guess, in his jacket, looked over it, standing five foot two, and said, wow, what a battlefield. I'd love to fight one there. Literally on record as saying that. Isn't that amazing? He just saw that that is the ideal battleground. And Napoleon Bonaparte, he was right because it is so many encyclopedias tell us it is the most famous battlefield in history it is the point is it's a literal place it is real this is really going to happen this isn't some spiritual battle up in the heavens that you don't get to see it's on earth all throughout history in the old testament there are battles that were fought and won there from famous people we even know like gideon who uh, overcame the midianites in that battlefield jehu who overcame jezebel remember her in that area, Josiah, who died in battle there, the, the the king, the boy king, Barak, who overcame Sisera in battle there, according to the book of Judges. So historically, we know that many battles happen there, and God's going to culminate world history with a battle right there, the battle of Armageddon. It is true. It is real. It is historical. You can count on it. It is going to happen just as God said. These words are true, says Revelation 19, verse 9. These are the true words of God. Let's go on to point number two. Preparation for the battle and now the participants in the battle. Verse 19. John says, and I saw the beast. Okay, so that's the Antichrist. He will be spearheading this battle. He He's going to put up his tent there for whatever reason in the Jezreel Valley, according to Daniel chapter 11. We saw that. So the Antichrist will be there. Uh, the kings of the earth will be there. At least those that are still loyal to the Antichrist at that time. The kings of the earth. This is a universal battle. This is a world war in the literal sense of the term. Not only the kings of the earth, but all their armies. We also know that the uh, false prophet is going to be there because that's mentioned in verse 19, false prophet, who's uh, the the minister of propaganda on behalf of the Antichrist. That's what the uh, false prophet will be. So they will be there. And we don't know exactly why or how they know that a battle is about to ensue, but they do know that Jesus Christ has returned claiming to be king. And in the same way, when Herod, who called himself a king, and he was also a a false king and a sinful king, was a very jealous king. And when he heard that a messianic king was in the area, possibly usurping him, Herod got insanely jealous and it just drew him to the point of bloodshed, didn't it? Insane! And that's exactly what's going to happen with the Antichrist. He can't handle a competitor. And so he's going to have sword drawn, Bring it on, King of Kings, I'm ready for you. At least so he thinks. He's just blinded by sin, lust, and pride. But that's who. so you got the bad guys and the good guys, the participants in this war. So the bad guys, the Antichrist, uh the false prophet, which scripture tells us they are going to be demonically inspired and empowered at that time. The kings of the earth and all of their armies, the earth dwellers will be there, as many can fit in that area. Uh, the judges of the earth, according to Psalms two, says the judges of the earth will be at this battle, Psalm two. And the peoples of the earth, Psalm 2 tells us, and Psalm 2 also tells us at this battle, the nations of the earth will gather for this battle. So those are the bad guys. That's a lot of people. In terms of numbers, this is not a very balanced or fair fight. But when you got Jesus on your side, you're in a majority, right? And majority wins with Jesus on their side. So the good guys in this battle are Jesus himself, king of kings and lord of lords, because it says in the middle of verse 19, beast and kings... They're there, they're assembled to make war against who? Against Jesus, the one who is, is riding the white horse, the one who just landed, the king of kings and lord of lords, and his armies behind him, which were redeemed, glorified Christian saints, are also there. Probably as witnesses, because the battle happens so fast. But also with them, according to Matthew 24, are Jesus' angels, his holy angels who came with him. Zechariah 14 also tells us that the holy angels will come with Christ at this battle. And Zechariah 14 is very specific that the Lord Jesus Christ will make war with the nations and he will come upon them and he'll just going to wipe them out. So those are the participants of this battle. What a a scandalous thought in verse 19 that Jesus is going to make war with someone. I thought Jesus was a pacifist. I thought Christians were pacifist. I thought the Bible was strictly pacifist. Mm, Nope, not in this passage. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at it, uh, the details in 20 and 21. And that is the uh, final point. point. number three is the punishments from the battle, the results of this battle. Like I said, it happens quick. Not a lot of fanfare, not a lot of detail. Actually, it's pretty cryptic in terms of what happens. There's a battle. It's ready to happen. Boom, it's over. And there are winners and losers. And that's what you see in uh, 20 and 21, the results of the participants. I mean, the uh, punishments from the battle. So the enemies get punished by Jesus Himself. And so look at the consequences of this battle. Verse 20. Here's how the battle happens. So you can imagine uh, Jesus is either just about to land or He has already landed Jerusalem and created an earthquake in Jerusalem that probably reverberated throughout the entire earth, which probably woke the Antichrist up. Whoa, I've got a competitor. And He's ready for this battle and He calls all His henchmen and all the nations and they gather in the great battlefield of planet Earth in the Jezreel Valley, headquartered at Megiddo. And the Antichrist probably has sword drawn. ready. I'm ready for you, Jesus and the false prophet. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes out of the sky and just, boom, squash, and it's over. It's not really a battle at all. Every time I read this, I think of The Wizard of Oz. I know that was before I was a Christian, but anyway, I love that movie, The Wizard of Oz, where uh, the witch sends all of her henchmen and her armies to go get Dorothy and the scarecrow and they're and they and they they're flying monkeys and they come down and they grab the scarecrow and they snatch him up and take him away alive. That's exactly what's going on right here. That's probably where the Wizard of Oz got that story, by the way. Because when Jesus returns and comes down, he doesn't kill the Antichrist. And, I mean, literally squash him. He doesn't kill the p- false prophet. He kills a lot of people, but he does not kill the Antichrist or the false prophet. It says he comes down and the terminology is graphic and it is aggressive terminology because it says uh, that Jesus seized them. Verse 20. The beast was seized, whether it's by his angels or Jesus himself. But he comes down and just snatch, seizes the Antichrist, snatch, seizes the fall, lops off his head. That's how you kill a snake. Cut off the head. Boom, it's over. And that's what God does. That's how he wins his battle. So he doesn't kill the Antichrist yet. So the beast was seized. The beast was snatched. The, The beast was taken prisoner by God himself. That's how it ends. Not only the uh, Antichrist, but also with him, the false prophet is also seized or snatched. Which false prophet? Well, the one who performed the miracles in the presence of the Antichrist. These were real bona fide miracles. That's kind of scary. When you've got somebody with that who is possessed by Satan himself and they have supernatural miracle working power at their disposal, that is frightening. That is like entrusting some... Maniacal, bloodthirsty nation of the earth with nuclear weapons. Which is, could be an imminent threat. But that's what's going on here. The false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived, he used these miracles to deceive people all over the world and to gather a following and he was successful. Deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. They worshipped the Antichrist. So they were guilty of rejecting the true gospel. And guilty of blasphemy and idolatry and worshiping a man and worshiping Satan himself. They are culpable. Their judgment is deserved. There is no ignorance here. God is a just God. God is a gracious God. We've seen throughout Revelation how God kept giving opportunity after opportunity of the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the wooing of Jesus Christ. Come and be saved and come and be saved. And even during the time of the seven bowls, God sends out... Uh, An eagle to declare the eternal gospel of God. Come all who will and be saved. The very last hour. At the 11th hour. God is the God of the 11th hour, isn't he? We know that from the thief on the cross. Breathing his last and finding the grace of God. And then immediately, boom, catapulted into heaven when he died. So these people willfully rejected the grace of God. As a matter of fact, many of them we saw in Revelation, they knew what they were doing because they raised their hand when they saw the judgments and they cursed God. You're doing this. Unbelievable defiance, but that's the hardened human heart. So God snatches up the Antichrist. God snatches up the false prophet, which probably leaves the rest of their army in a daze and a malaise and in total confusion. They don't know what to do. You've taken our leader. You've taken our leader. What do we do? And look what happens in the middle of verse 20. These two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, according to Jesus, is eternal hell, the second death. Did you know that probably right now no one is in the lake of fire? Because Jesus said the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. And then later we're going to see in Revelation 20 where all of humanity... Throughout, that has lived all throughout history, is going to be raised from the dead, given a physical body, and those who have never believed, who rejected Christ, they are going to be for the first time thrown into the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever, which is the second death. So the lake of fire is eternal hell. The final, permanent, eternal hell. And the first two people, or the first two beings to go into the lake of fire isn't Satan, aren't angels, it is the false prophet and the Antichrist himself. And they are thrown, notice, the terminology is very specific. They are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, we're going to see, they are in the lake of fire for 1,000 years. Literal years. 1,000 years. According to Revelation 20. And then it says, at the end of the thousand years, others are thrown into the lake of fire where the Antichrist and the false prophet are, present tense, still alive and living consciously in the eternal lake of fire. So they're thrown alive in the lake of fire and they stay alive in the lake of fire, eternal torment, experiencing the wrath of God for rejecting Jesus Christ. That is the holy justice of God. Where do people go now that die and reject Jesus Christ? Well, they don't go into the eternal lake of fire. They go into what the New Testament calls Hades. It's used 11 times. Hades. It's used 11 times consistently, by the way, where people go... Will reject Jesus Christ, Hades. Uh, the Old Testament many times refers to the Hades as the grave or the place or the abode of the dead. But the New Testament is more specific. So if somebody is an unbeliever and they die right now, their soul immediately goes into Hades. And it is a place of torment. It is a place of judgment. Uh, Jesus tells us about it explicitly and specifically in the, the Gospel of Luke. That is not a parable. That's a real story because Abraham is in the story and Abraham is a real person he is And paradise is a real place, the bosom of Abraham. And the man in that story has a real name and a real profession. And he's in Hades, he's away from God, and he's in this temporary abode of punishment called Hades, away from Christ, in darkness, suffering torment. He is conscious and he even knows why he's there and he even knows he's guilty and he deserves to be there. That's the amazing thing. And he wants to go rescue his older brothers so they don't have to suffer the same fate. That's in Luke. Jesus told us this. So that's where people go when they die. Apart from Christ, today they go into Hades. Believers, people who know Jesus Christ, who die, as soon as they breathe their last, their soul goes immediately into paradise because that's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. This day, you t- truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Where's paradise? Second Corinthians, Paul told us that paradise is heaven. That's what he called it. Where's heaven? Wherever the immediate presence of God is. Wherever the immediate presence of Jesus is in glory. So paradise is heaven. So anybody that's a believer that dies right now in this life, immediately they go into the presence of God in paradise in glory, awaiting their final resurrection body someday. But it's perfect peace. It's a glorious thing. So if you've had a dear loved one, a relative, a friend who has died that was a Christian I was just telling somebody today I think that uh, I had a good friend who died of cancer and we prayed for him for 2 years and he didn't get healed but he got healed when he went to heaven. He didn't have a tumor anymore. He's fully conscious and he's in the presence of God. That's an amazing thing. It's a new way to look at healing. Totally fully restored in the glory glorious presence of God and Jesus Christ in paradise in heaven. That is your fate, Christian, the moment you leave this life. Heaven is not your I mean earth is not your home but heaven is your home. So that's the lake of fire, verse 20. So they are thrown in the lake of fire. They will be there for 1,000 years alive. Verse 21, so after those two are taken care of, it says, and the rest that were gathered there in that battle, on the battlefield, of so you've got hundreds, possibly thousands and thousands who are gathered there. And you've got Jesus, the warrior, Jesus, the king, Jesus, who has a sword for judgment, a rod of iron, What happened to those enemies? It says the rest were killed with the sword. Wow. The Greek word is killed, slaughtered, put to death in war. Very graphic. Who did it? Well, the rest were killed. The rest of the enemies, these followers of Antichrist, they were killed with the sword. Which which, What sword? Which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. These people were killed or are going to be killed by Jesus. Again, what a scandalous... Stunning, mind-boggling thought that confronts the way humanity thinks and the world about Jesus. That someday Jesus is going to kill or massacre thousands of people. But these are his enemies. These are also enemies of his people. These are people who slaughtered and persecuted and murdered his people for seven years on earth. And they did it in celebration, if you recall, when they slaughtered the two witnesses in Jerusalem. And they don't bury the bodies of these godly men and they leave these bodies desecrated out on the street for everybody to publicly view for three days probably at that time televised all over the world and they're celebrating in jubilation the dead body of two faithful saints to jesus so these are not ignorant innocent sinful people they were willfully disobedient, have rejected God and they've got what's coming to them from the justice of God and that's who's killed. And Jesus does it by the sword of his mouth. Well, is the sword coming out of his mouth real? Well, I think it's they're executing, killed by the word of God, the word of Christ. And it's supernatural. How does that work? I don't know. God is beyond me. God is bigger than me. God is amazing. God is eternal. God is infinite. God is all powerful. God does things I can't understand. God says and does things that hurt my brain. So I stop thinking about it and I just believe him. And that's what happens here. Jesus kills all these people and executes his righteous authority and judgment with the word of his mouth, the sword of his mouth. Well, can God do that? Absolutely. Genesis chapter 1, God created the entire world with his word, right? And he created the entire world and universe with his word out of nothing. Can you imagine? And God said, boom, it was there. And God said, boom, it was there. That is the power of Almighty God. Jesus has that same power because Jesus, with the Father, created the world out of nothing with his word. Another, another amazing, other amazing things that God did through the Bible with just His Word. How about when God parted the Red Sea with just His Word? A proclamation of truth and boom. Red Sea, dry land. How about Jesus Himself with just His Word? Lazarus, come forth. And a man who had been dead more than three days instantly came back to life. Isn't that amazing? That is the Word of Jesus Christ. That is the power of His Word. Creative words of power. Judgmental words of power. And by his word, Jesus hush and calms a storm, amazingly, supernaturally. That is unthinkable power. That is the power of God. That is the power of Jesus's word. And if we we look to the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, we know God has said, my word is a hammer that smashes. So his word is judgment. He also says, my word is like fire that burns. So the word of God burns and purges and purifies. That's that judgmental component to God's powerful word. Jesus' powerful word. And also, Scripture goes on to say that God's word, Jesus' word, is like a sword, right? And what does a sword do? It is used in judgment. It is used to pierce. And that's the way it's used here. So this is the powerful word of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely amazing. And all of creation is subject to the obedience of His word and every command. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of Jesus, the glorious, majestic, not just the lamb, but also the lion, of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds in fulfillment to prophecy in Ezekiel 39. And also right here, we saw earlier, the result of this war is everybody is decimated. All the enemies are killed, killed almost instantaneously by God's powerful word through Jesus Christ. And there is carnage for miles and miles and blood for miles and miles up to the horse's bridles, as Revelation 14 told us, for 200 miles long, as Revelation 16 16 told us and all the birds were filled with their flesh and then that's when the supper of god happens and all these vultures from all over the world literally converge on that spot and that is the battle of armageddon wow so what do we do with that pastor yeah that's a good question i had the same sobering thought well what do you do with that well as always you believe it right That you respond in faith and you believe it. This is the truth of God. These words are true. Revelation 19.9 told us that. We've got to believe it. Uh, We also rejoice in this, that Jesus, when he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. All wrongs will be done right when Jesus returns. And we've got to remember that, yeah, there is a massive carnage, but also what's happening on the flip side, the good side is how many people Jesus is saving literally when He returns. He's rescuing people. Don't forget about those thousands of Jewish people that the Antichrist and all the world hate their guts and they're trying to kill and murder them so they're hiding in the desert somewhere for three and a half years. And finally, they can come out of the rocks and come out of the desert and live and find refreshment and embrace Jesus Christ their King, the one whom they have pierced, their beautiful, precious Savior. Let alone all the other people living on the world that have been in hiding, who are believers, are rescued by Jesus' return. He's always a savior, isn't he? Always a savior for his people. And another practical implication of this is just to be reminded to balance our thinking of Jesus. Because so many times, and I am guilty of this as a Christian, we have such a, a casual view of God and Jesus. God is my buddy the man upstairs what a what a terrible thought and phrase how disrespectful how irreverent almost blasphemous the man upstairs who who are you talking about you certainly not god the glorious the all glorious god who's yes he is a savior but he's also the judge right so we we this is a good time to be reminded of the holiness of god we worship him in fear and reverence says the book of peter our god is a consuming fire says the book of hebrews it, it is all through scripture, and that is the God that we know, love, and serve. And as uh, just a, r- a reminder, if you are a Christian, we are not subject to any of this fierce, ferocious judgment that is yet to come from God's hand because every condemnation, judgment, death we deserve has already been ferociously taken care of and punished by God by pouring, God poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross. So I have actually already been judged. I have been condemned. I have been killed. I have been slaughtered. I have been put to death when God the Father punished Jesus on the cross. And now that all that's left for me is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and eternal life. That is the glorious gospel. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the triune God. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity for finite people uh, to worship you, an infinite God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making that possible. Thank you, Jesus, as the high priest, for making that possible. And thank you for your gospel, which changes lives and makes that possible. Thank you for the reminders and the truths of your word, God. With these sobering truths about the bottle of Armageddon, uh, balance out our perspective of who God is. We have a correct uh, attitude towards you, God. We we love you. We are intimate with you. And yet we fear the fact that you are a holy God. and count it a great privilege to know you personally as your children through the adoption of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.